Hi, I'm Jerry, and this is why I change. Change, I equate change, I guess, with growth, and I always want to be growing. I don't want to be uh, the same person, you know, next year as I am this year. You know, I don't think of myself as a curmudgeon and not not comfortable with change, but sometimes, you know, the way things have been done at Parkview feel like the way they should always be done, and so I think with some different um, different approaches to things, different looks of things, um, certain programs going away and replaced by other programs. Initially, apparently I'm a little bit hesitant and you know pining for the good old days when we did it this way at Parkview. And then after a short while, um, I get comfortable and with the new system, the new layout, and uh, can embrace it and really see some of the benefits and the growth that they um, provide for me, for my family, and, and for my kids through the children's programming as well. No, I definitely feel that change, change is hard, uh, harder sometimes more so than others, but I think change is, is something that is a good thing to strive for. Um, how have I grown? I think that I do, do take comfort and I do seek out the opportunity to get together with um, people who want to talk about different situations and how the Bible would um, would interpret them. The, there were three of us that met pretty consistently and I, I really looked forward to the time that I met with them. It was you know an hour and a half a week because it was such an opportunity to be uh, mindful of how Ray's sermon on Sunday impacted us in such different ways. I want to learn new things. I want to experience new things. I want to um, just get out in the world and see what it has to offer and not just go to the same place for vacation or the same place for restaurants, um, but just, you know, take what's out there and run with it. You know, change is a reality um, of human existence. Uh, nothing in life is static. As uh, Benjamin Franklin once put it, when you're finished changing, you're finished. And I think he was right. So with that in mind, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 19, Old Testament Psalm 19. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, in case you're a guest, just so you know what we're doing, uh, we're in a series right now in which we're exploring the question of why. You know, why we as Christians, why we as a church do some of the things that we do. Last week we talked about uh, worship, the why, the when, the how, the where of it. And this morning I wanted to lead with the idea of change because, uh, because we as a church firmly believe that when a person uh, comes to faith in Christ, that God, by the power of his spirit, begins to change us from the inside out. In other words, we begin to experience this, this spiritual transformation whereby we become more and more and more like Jesus. And certainly my hope is if you consider yourself a Christian, uh, you are seeing that kind of change in your life and others are seeing it as well. It's also important you know that one of the primary ways that we, um, we believe God brings about spiritual uh, transformation and life change is through the study of his word. And that's not just my opinion, it's what Jesus said while praying with his, and praying for his followers one day. He said, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Later on, the Apostle Peter 
uh, explained to the church how no scripture had its origin in the human will, although its writers were, were human, they were carried along, he said, by the Holy Spirit, inspired. Uh, the author of the book of Hebrews says the word of God is alive and active. It's relevant to our lives. And uh, the apostle Paul declares to the church, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In short, the teaching, the, the, the study of the application of scripture plays a vital role uh, in our spiritual growth and development. In fact, I was reading uh, recently in the Psalms, and uh, I came across something King David uh, wrote that I thought might be helpful for us to process together, because what he says is very interesting. It's in Psalm 19, and he begins the Psalm saying this in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. And then David says this. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the law are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward." Now, why do, why do I think uh, this psalm is pertinent to our discussion? Um, I think it's pertinent because in it, David offers insight to, to, to and on the role that, that God's word plays in, in life change, in our own spiritual development, our spiritual growth. And you say, well, I'm not sure I picked up on that as you were reading. I didn't pick up on it either until recently. But if you think about it, as you read through it, you realize David essentially explains to his readers why we need the scriptures, why they're important to us. How so? Well, in his opening first few statements, actually verses one through six, David affirms and extols what I've heard some theologians refer to as the silent word of God. The silent word of God which emanates in and through our natural world. Notice he writes, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Then he immediately seems to contradict himself. Because he says, they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. And then he turns again and he says, their voice goes out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. What was David doing? Well, in a delightfully poetic way, David is telling us that the universe, the cosmos, the natural world, non-verbally communicates knowledge and information to us about God. And I propose that on some level, to some degree, as, as finite human beings, we all, we all have a sense of that message. Which is exactly why when, when we stand and watch the ocean churn, or we see an eagle soar, or we stare at snow-capped mountains, or gaze into the night sky at the Milky Way, we're filled with, 
we're filled with wonder and awe and joy and our hearts and our souls are just profoundly moved and overwhelmed. You know, technically, technically the sun is nothing more than a giant ball of gas in a constant state of combustion, millions and millions and millions of miles away, and yet we savor its warmth. We celebrate its rising and its setting. We write songs about it. Why? Because nature is great art. Its amazing beauty, its detailed complexity proclaims the existence of an artist like no other. In silence, the universe communicates that nothing we see is an accident, including us. We are the product of artistic vision, intricate design, and sovereign intention. I mean, let's face it, even if life's a mess, even if we're struggling, even if we're struggling to believe in God, still, you can't help but look at the universe and the world and its beauty and not be moved, you know? Not have this deep sense of the infinite. We all experience it. The world is indeed a masterpiece of divine art, and so are every one of you. And so David stresses how, he stresses how everyone is hearing this, this truth, all of the earth. Now, whether or not people accept and believe it is another matter. Now, here's the really fascinating thing, for me at least. David's psalm doesn't end in verse 6. It can't end there. Why? Because the cosmos, the universe, the world, nature, uh, i.e. the silent word, doesn't communicate enough. It doesn't, it doesn't give us all the information we need about God. And so in verse 7, David affirms and extols the written word of God. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Translation, as great and wonderful and beautiful and inspiring and revealing as nature is, uh, its message is limited. It's incomplete. Uh, we need more. Think of it this way. If I'm at an event with my wife, and um, my wife Margie, and I look at her from across a room, and I smile and I nod my head, that's not necessarily easy to interpret. It could mean, hey, I am having a great time. Let's stick around a while. Or it could mean, hey, I am ready to get out of here. Please get over here. We need to leave now. Or yeah, I'm having some kind of neck facial tick and, and spasm. I need your help. Right? It could be any number of those things. Uh, it's, that nonverbal communication doesn't, doesn't give her enough information. But if I text her and I say, let's, let's leave now. Go to Blackberry Market on the corner of Main and Hillside and Glen Ellen for a giant cinnamon roll. Well, that written message is way more clear and more complete, right? With that being said, does nature tell us about God? Yes, absolutely. But the brokenness of our world, its imperfections, things like tidal waves and forest fires, landslides, earthquakes, they don't fully, they don't fully communicate the glory, the goodness, the love, the grace of God. Things can get misinterpreted. They're incomplete. It's incomplete. We need more information. So David, he explains how the law of the Lord, his written word, is perfect. And the per word perfect means whole, sufficient, complete. And the term he uses here, along with law, he uses law, statutes, precepts, commands, decrees. Understand, they are all synonyms uh, for Scripture. All of them. So he uses them, and then by way of Hebrew parallelism, David describes Scripture using a series of strong adjectives and phrases. And I don't know how you react to it or how you feel about it, but for me, I, I'm thinking, man, if David offered just his first three statements, it would be more than enough to reveal Scripture's power and value to me. 
Because he starts off by saying, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. And the, term, the Hebrew term for refresh here means to revive, to bring to life, to, to wake up. The implication being that there's something wrong with our soul. Like a computer that's gone into sleep mode, it needs to be refreshed, it needs to be revived. David's assertion is that in contrast to nature, Scripture has the ability to really do that, to wake you up, to, to more fully, more clearly reveal to you who God is, who you are, and who you're created to be. And over in the New Testament, the author of the book of Hebrews says, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It per, uh, penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. What was, the, what was the, the, the author's intent there using this idea of a sword? He's saying that the scripture is like a sharp sword that cuts. It cuts through the illusions and the denials that we have keeping us from facing the reality, sometimes the harsh reality of who we are. Broken, flawed, rebellious, sinful creatures. And yet at the exact same time, scripture also shows us how uniquely loved we are, how valued we are by our creator. It revives our souls. It wakes us up to both of those realities. And then David, then David says, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And the Hebrew term for simple means naive, immature, inexperienced. And the term for wise refers to the ability to make right, good, healthy decisions. In other words, David said, scripture can be trusted to give us wisdom to live well. Now, if we were to take a moment and look back over our lives and reflect on, on our lives. And if I think if we're honest about it, we would all admit to doing some really unwise and foolish things over the years, right? I look back at, I look back at my 18-year-old self, and I gotta tell you, I was, I was foolish. Arrogant, thought I knew everything, no one could tell me anything, I made a lot of bad decisions because I, I understood so little about life. I lacked experience. In my mid-20s, I looked back at that 18-year-old kid and thought, what a knucklehead, you know, what a fool. Yet in the same way, my 20-some-year-old self looked very foolish to my 30-some-year-old self. And my 30-some-year-old self looked very foolish to my 40-some-year-old self. And I'm just going to stop there because I think, you know, <laughs> I, think you, I think you're getting what I'm saying, right? You, you, you get it. Well, here's the deal. My present self and your present self will seem somewhat naive and foolish to your 10 years from now self. That's the way life works. As the old adage goes, experience is the best teacher. Now, is there anything we can do about that? Is there anything we can do to expedite wisdom and maturity? David says yes. Scripture. Scripture can be trusted to make wise the simple. In other words, through his word, God communicates to us what is right and good and true and healthy and best for our lives. And really, who knows better than the one who created us? And wisdom comes in listening to him. David continues, he says, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And this one made me, this, one, this statement made me stop and pause for quite a while. And I was thinking through this because I realize that that's a pretty radical statement. Essentially, David is saying, knowing and obeying the teaching of Scripture will bring you joy. Bring you joy. And I realize that there may be some of us here who really struggle with that. 
idea because, you know, uh, we would say, while, while I agree Scripture offers a lot of good advice, a lot of good moral teaching, we might say, but I don't agree with everything. You know, I don't agree with everything. There are things in the biblical text that seem primitive, narrow-minded, and offensive. Not all of God's precepts give me joy. And I get that. I understand that. But consider two things. First, when it comes to Scripture, look, there's, there is always going to be something. There's always going to be something that will be found culturally off-putting, no matter, no matter the culture you come from. Do you know what I'm saying by that? In other words, people from one culture uh, will look at a particular teaching of Scripture, and they'll, they'll respond and say, that makes perfect sense, of course. More, of course, we accept that. While here in 21st century America, in regard, regarding the same exact teaching, we might say, well, that teaching is wrong, that teaching is outdated and unacceptable. Don't underestimate the influence culture can have on your reaction and interpretation of Scripture. And the second thing to keep in mind is that, look, of course, of course there are going to be things God says that you're not going to agree with or like because he's God and you're not. And you've heard me say this before, but it's true. If the God in your mind always agrees with your opinions, you never disagree. You get along famously. Your your God never offends you, never frustrates you, never confuses you, never disagrees with you or surprises you. I'm telling you, that's a God of your, your own making, of your imagination. It's just a mirror image of yourself. Because if God exists, the true creator God exists, then of course there are going to be things that, that he says and we're going, to, we're going to find hard to understand and difficult to embrace. Of course, that's only logical. But David's contention is that the person whose soul is revived, the person who is wise, will joyfully accept what God has to say. I think you'd go so far to suggest you would joyfully accept God telling you what to do. In fact, I think one could argue that a mark of spiritual maturity, a mark of life change, of of spiritual transformation is found in one's one's willingness to trust and obey God's word, even even if you don't fully understand it. Now, David goes on to give other descriptors. He says the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. In other words, we get discernment from it. He says it brings about reverence for God. He says the decrees of the Lord are, are all firm. They are righteous. And uh, the image here uh, with the word right is, is the uh, image of a, of a straight edge, you know, a tool by which you measure all other things. In other words, he's saying we never determine if Scripture is right or true by some outside standard. All other standards are measured by Scripture, God's written word. And because of all this, because of all this, David tries to stress, you know, the, the amazing value of Scripture. He says, the decrees of God, they're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Great reward. You know, one of the things that we value here at Parfew, is the truth and relevance of God's, of God's word and the critical role that it plays in our spiritual formation. 
which is exactly why we teach from it. We teach from Scripture, not only here, you know, in this room on Sunday morning, but we, we teach it throughout all of our ministries. We teach it with our children, talk to, to and with our children. We talk about it and teach it with our students. Uh, we talk about it and teach it with our life groups throughout the week. And as you already know, we're going to have life group sign-ups starting next Sunday. And, uh, and yet, not only do we teach it, we, uh, we encourage all of our people, everyone, all of you, to read it, to study it, to meditate on Scripture on your own. On your own, to develop, to develop, develop a personal devotional life. Why? Simple. We want God's best for you. We want God's best for you. Look, if God's word is as powerful and valuable and nourishing and rewarding as David says, and as many of us claim to believe, then I would think we, we, we all agree that one hour a week, one hour or 168 hours a week here in this room is not enough. It's not enough to maintain a healthy spiritual life. One hour on Sunday. What are you going to do the rest of the week? When everything goes south and you're faced with big challenges, difficult relationships, sickness, illness, whatever, what are you, where are you going to get your wisdom and input? One day a week is not enough. It's just not. Think about Psalm 1 and how the psalmist describes a strong, healthy, godly person. Remember? The writer says, blessed is the one who what? Whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who, and who meditates on that law day and night. Day and night. Not just an hour a week. I mean, do you, do you have any kind of personal devotional life on your own or with others? Do you, do you study, do you read, do you meditate on God's word? You need to. But here's a disclaimer. I have no desire to swell the ranks of church people who just fill themselves with biblical information but know not its power in their lives. Understand the reading of, and studying of God's word is not meant to be a merely an academic exercise. Neither is it meant to be some odious burden. It's meant for your spiritual benefit, for your spiritual health and growth. And we should view God's word, we should view scripture as a wonderful gift from God, a measure of his grace that given the chance, given the chance, will revive our souls and grant us wisdom, fill our hearts with joy, warn us of evil, and bring great reward. Great reward. But, David says, notice, he says even, even God's written word is not enough. Right? That's what he says. Notice how he ends his psalm with a prayer. He, he prays, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And when David asks the question, who can discern their own errors, you realize it's a rhetorical question, right? The answer is obvious. No one. No one can do that. No one can fully discern their own errors because we all live in such denial about things. No one can discern their own imperfections, their own faults, their own failures, their own sins. Not me, not you, not David. I mean, sure, our blatant sins, our 
willful acts of disobedience toward God and his word. You know, we can see those. We, we recognize those. David did. David says, Lord, help me. Keep me from committing those kind of things. However, in my opinion, what David was more concerned about was the hidden faults. The hidden faults. Those sins of the human heart that are way more difficult to identify, let alone avoid. Others may see them in us. They may, others may see them in us, but, but we struggle to recognize these things in, our, in ourselves. Things like pride, greed, hate, prejudice, bitterness, envy. And man, I tell you what, those sins, those sins will mess you up because chances are good you don't see them. You don't see them. But God sees them. He sees our, our willful sins as well as our hidden ones, and we're culpable for both. Which is why David admits he needs God's forgiveness, right? He prays, Lord, forgive my hidden faults as well as my blatant failures. And then he says, then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Translation, then I'll be perfectly innocent of all sin. Do you understand the significance of, of, of that statement? I mean, David, David is saying that even, he's saying, even though I can't possibly, I can't realistically discern all my faults, failures, and sin, still I can be perfectly pleasing and acceptable before God. How? Here's the answer. David calls the Lord what? His rock and his redeemer. And the term, the term Hebrew term for rock literally means strong, i.e., my strong redeemer. In other words, David, David understood he understood that, that his forgiveness, his redemption, rested in the hands of God, not in his own abilities. And David was confident. I mean, he seemed to have absolutely no doubt that divine redemption, God's promise of redemption, would someday come. Or, given the overall context of the psalm, perhaps I could put it this way. The silent word of God, the written word of God, are not enough to redeem us, not enough to forgive our sin and make us blameless before our Creator. And therefore, we ultimately need the incarnate Word of God, the Word made flesh, Jesus, our divine rock and redeemer. He came as, as a greater king than David, he came as the true king, truly blameless, truly innocent of all transgression. He delighted in the law completely, meditated on it day and night. I mean, think about Jesus' life. When tempted, Jesus answered evil with Scripture, saying, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When uh, he was attacked by religious experts, he responded with Scripture again and again, saying, It is written, it is written. And facing the reality of his own crucifixion, Jesus declared, the scriptures must be fulfilled. When carrying his cross to the streets of Jerusalem, he told onlookers, don't weep for me. And he quoted the Old Testament book of Hosea. And while on the cross, as his life ebbed away, Jesus quoted scripture, he quoted David, David, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And make no mistake, Jesus' Jesus's mind, his heart, his life was saturated with Scripture. 
He delighted in it. He meditated on it. He understood it. He spoke and he taught the written word of God to everyone and anyone who would listen. But even more significant, he obeyed it completely. He fulfilled the perfect law, for he was the word incarnate. And what's really fascinating to me is how David here in Psalm 19, David says, by keeping the law, by obeying the scriptures, there is what? He says, there is great reward. Conversely, there are serious consequences for not obeying it, right? Well, if that's true, there's great reward in obeying the scripture, then what's, what's the deal with Jesus? He obeyed it. He obeyed the law completely. And he ended up on a cross. And that's true. But don't you see? Therein lies the gospel. Therein lies the good news. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly for all of us who could never do it. He innocently suffered for all of us who are guilty of transgression, willful and hidden. He lovingly, graciously received the consequence of our sin, death, so that through him we can reap great reward, life everlasting. As the Apostle Paul summarized in the New Testament, he says, Christ has redeemed us, our strong redeemer. Now, with all that in mind, let me ask you a question. How do you read, assuming you do read the scriptures regularly, how do you read them? And I'm interested, I'm interested in that because um, moralistic religious people tend to read the scripture uh, with this overwhelming sense of burden. Just overwhelming sense of burden. They see it as just a bunch of, just a bunch of rules to keep and examples to try and live up to. Abraham had faith, David had courage, Esther was bold and brave, Joseph was forgiving, Moses was decisive, Job was the suffering servant. How am I ever gonna, how am I ever gonna do all that? How am I ever gonna be all that? Is that how you see it? Is that how you read it? Because if you do, trust me when I tell you, that approach to scripture offers you no sweetness, only bitterness, no delight, only despair, no joy, only frustration. See, that was the problem with the religious elite in Jesus' day. They saw the scripture as, as a labor-intensive instruction manual filled with rules to follow, examples to live up to, rituals to keep. And they believed that if they worked hard enough and they were, if they were good enough and they performed well enough, all these things, that God would grant them favor and eternal life. And Jesus challenged them directly on that. He said to them, he said, look, you, you guys study the scriptures diligently, but you think they can give you eternal life. They can't. He says, these are the very scriptures that point to me. They're, they all point to me. All of them are meant to lead you to me. And he says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You refuse. It's because the, the religious elite thought that they could fulfill, fulfill the law well enough to earn their lives with God. And the truth was they couldn't. No one can. No one can. It was and is only Jesus who fulfilled the law perfectly. He was, he was perfectly faithful, perfectly courageous, perfectly decisive, perfectly forgiving, perfectly innocent of any sin. He was the ultimate suffering servant, the true king, 
And all the scriptures point to him. And it's by coming to him in faith that we find life. And I'm telling you right now, you read the scriptures with that truth in mind, it will bring you sweetness, delight, and joy to your life. It will. It'll change you forever. You know, when it comes to Psalm 19, um, Christian author and thinker C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book on the Psalms called Reflections on the Psalms, and this was his favorite. And Lewis said this about Psalm 19. He said, I take this song to be the greatest poem in the Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in all the world. That may be true. I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but I do know this. This beautiful song of David tells us some important things. It tells us of the silent word of God and our need to recognize it. It tells us of the written word of God, our need to meditate on it and trust it. And it points us to the incarnate word of God and our need to receive it, to receive him, Jesus, our strong redeemer, the true king who is good, loving, and gracious. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful this morning for the beauty of our world, of how it takes our breath away at times, how it tells us of you, the greatest artist ever, who not only created everything around us and ourselves, but you sustain it all with the power of your hand. But even the world, the nature around us doesn't give us enough information. We need your word which explains to us more better who you are and, and who we are and who you call us to be and our, our faults, our failures, but also the fact that you love us and value us and want us in relationship with you, our creator. The reality is, Lord, we can't, we can't do it on our own. We need, we need a redeemer just like David. We need you to be our redeemer. And so we're thankful for the incarnate word, Jesus, who is the true king, the true king, who is good, loving, and gracious to us. We worship him today, our Redeemer. It's his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. For the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The decrees of the Lord are firm, all of them are righteous. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive me my faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's important to me that you realize we don't, we don't read and study the scripture as if it's some homework assignment in which if we do it enough, we do it well enough, God's gonna pass us and give us an A. We read it because it is his word to us. 
It's for our benefit. It's for acquiring wisdom and how to live well, how to live good, healthy lives. Um, but it's not enough because we all fall short of that, right? We all fail here and there. Um, and then we have faults that we can't even see. We need all that forgiven, which is why we need a Redeemer, Jesus. And it's by putting our faith in Him, by God's grace that we're forgiven for all that He's done for us, paying the penalty for our sin and all for us life. And that's what following Him and being, putting faith in Him is what it means to be a Christian. And I hope you guys understand that. Hope you come back next week as we continue on this series, Why We? And uh, hopefully you're finding it helpful so far. Uh, if you're here this morning, and maybe you have some questions about what this Christian thing means, we have some, uh, some of our prayer team folks will be up in the front following the service. You can come and talk with them. Maybe there's some really good things that happened in your life today and you just want to tell somebody about it and pray with someone about it, giving thanks to God. They're here as well for that. Or if you're struggling with something and you need, you need someone to talk to, they're here for you as well. Okay? Let me pray for us and then we're dismissed. And now, Lord, as we leave this place, as we go out, out into the world, may we rejoice in how it screams of your beauty and your, your creation, your, 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 art, your artistry. May we be moved by that. And this week, may we, may we look to your word for wisdom and insight to deal with the good and bad of life. And may we live in such a way as we point people to Jesus, our rock and redeemer. And now may your hand of grace and peace and strength rest on your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.